in Acts chapter 12. <coughs> Acts chapter 12, I will begin reading at verse 18. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord and having made Blastus, the king's personal aid their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Oh, Heavenly Father, as this time we open and examine thy word, open and examine us, O oh Lord. Open thy truth to us, we pray. Cause us to have ears that we might hear thy truth and cause us to examine and delight and be thankful for the work of thy spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> God's sovereignty is an amazing and a very reassuring doctrine. It's a doctrine that's very slow to be embraced and even sometimes contended with. How often it has been that I've had the opportunity to talk to different people at different times, people who are believers, but in their understanding of the working of God and the sovereignty of God sound more like deists than they do Christians. When they speak about the events and times in which we live, there were, by earthly standards, great men who helped frame this nation. A good many of them were what we call deists. Today, people look at their writings and they see, well, they use the word creator. That means they're Christians, right? No, that was a real buzzword for the deists because the deists would quickly say, God created. He created the whole universe and the world like a fine watchmaker would create a watch. Very intricately made, very great quality, but then he wound it up and let it run. And that mentality still shows itself with some very well-meaning people who believe in God yet feel as if it's up to them to bring about God's plan. Though they won't go so far as say God can't do it himself, 
they may say by word and action, they give us to understand that they think that's the case. And so it is with man in general. He has to somehow make himself part or even the center so often. Well, after several weeks away from the book of Acts, we return to where we left off. Peter had been imprisoned by Herod. He was released by an angel of God. And upon being released, he made his way over to the house of the mother of John Mark, the Mark who would be the writer of the second gospel. It must have been rather a large dwelling because many people had assembled there. And the assembly was, for the most part, I mean, they were praying for other things, but for the most part, they were praying for Peter to be released. And while they were still praying, and they were still praying, whilst Peter stood outside the house knocking. In the beginning of the chapter, we are introduced to Herod also called Agrippa. We see that he had James, the brother of John, beheaded. That's what killed with the sword actually meant. Not that they ran the sword through him, but they used the sword to cut his head off. And when he saw that this improved his popularity ratings, he imprisoned Peter. And the whole idea of imprisoning Peter was to bring him out before the people and have the people condemn him as well. But now Peter is gone. No one knows where he is. Verse 17 tells us that he departed and went to another place. Sort of in a Apostle Witness Program. <clears throat> I knew you'd have to think on that a while. But in verse 19, we see Herod conducts a thorough search for Peter. <clears throat> but he's not found. And at the same time, he thoroughly examines the guards questions them at great length. How did this man escape? Did any of you have anything to do with this? Did anybody come in and take him and overpower you? Remember, there were 16 soldiers set as guards. And so, without a good explanation of what happened, he commanded those soldiers to be led away. Literally, that's what the text tells us, which generally means, led away generally means to be put to death. As our Bibles read. Now, this was not a spiteful show of cruelty on the part of Herod, but it was the common punishment for guards who had let their prisoners escape, at least in the Roman Empire. That's why we will read and we come upon it the, when Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi, the Philippian jailer, as, as Paul and Silas are let free again by that angel of God, he is ready to kill himself. He'll take uh, 
he'll take the punishment and do it to himself rather than have the uh, be put out there to be uh, killed. And Paul and Silas have to talk him out of that. Well, meanwhile, after all this, Herod has other things to attend to. He has to go to the public games that are taking place in Caesarea in honor of the emperor, Claudius. And so we see at the end of verse 19, and he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Stayed there for a period of time. Well, verse 20, there's something else that we're told about this. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Phoenicia was not in the territory that Herod had control over. He was not governor over that region. That was part of Syria at the time. But there was something about what was going on in Tyre and Sidon that had somehow uh, made what we could say, and it's almost literally put this way in the Greek, it made him fighting mad with Tyre and Sidon. So what he did is he cut off supplies of grain and fruit to these cities that were big port cities. So they didn't have any kind of agriculture going on. They needed desperately not only these things to sustain themselves, but also to aid their shipping. But he had come very angry with them and having made uh, the people then said, well, we need, to, we need to do something about this. We need to straighten this out because this could be devastating to us. So they got on the good side of Blastus, the king's personal aide or chamberlain, as some people call it. It was in the British monarchy a title called the Groom of the Stool. And this was a man who attended to the king when the king relieved himself. And so the stool was the word for the what we would consider a commode today. And you would think, oh yeah, what a nasty job. You've got to look after the nasty king in that, in that nasty situation. But it was one of the best jobs and positions you could have in the whole kingdom because you were so close to the king and the king would share things with you more than just his bodily functions. But he would, he had a, this was a person of great trust and great influence with the king. And so many people would court the favor of the groom of the stool in order to get the heir of the king and get on the king's good side. Well, these people in Tyre and Sidon saw that this was the position basically that, that Blastus had. So they said, come on, let's be friends. And maybe they even bribed him. That wouldn't be beyond the, the pale of things. And they went to make peace, again, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Luke is giving us an idea of what, how Herod operated and what it was like to get on the wrong side of him. 
It is said by one historian that the Herod family, which was known for insufferable egotism, that they went without being desired, unmissed, and unmourned. From verse 21, so on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal peril, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. Appointed day, the second day probably of the, of the games and of the feasting that's going on. He comes and he makes a grand appearance. Herod arrives in what is said to be a royal robe. And from uh, Josephus's accounting of that situation, apparently it was made of a red, or I mean a silver thread of some kind. Which upon the light of the sun's rays reflecting on it made it for a shimmering brilliance. He was dressed in a way that would make Elton John jealous. But that shimmering effect of the light shining off of him because he was standing right in that position for it to happen at the right time of the day caused awe and amazement in the crowd. And then he proceeded to give an oration, a rather lengthy speech, which caused a great outpouring of adoration as we see in verse 22. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. They're saying this over and over again. It's not like they just said it one time, but they continually were saying it. This was not a problem because Roman emperor worship walked hand in hand with the worship of the many Roman gods. They were uh, those who believed in a multitude of gods. So they weren't actually calling Herod a supreme being, but they were calling him a god, and that certainly appealed to his vanity. But something happens, verse 23, then immediately, straight away, the, an angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and he died. Now the word struck here, the angel struck him, is the same word that was used in verse 7 for what the, the angel did to Peter. But we know it's different strokes for different folks. Here, this was a severe stroke of affliction. You see, Herod had accepted the flattery, the impiety, instead of giving glory to God. And Herod is nominally a Jew. He has a Jewish background to him. And it says, then he was eaten 
by worms. Not at that moment. No, at that moment, he fell deathly sick and was taken to bed where he lingered for five days and his rotting flesh produced worms. What a contrast to the shimmering brilliance that he had only moments ago. And how amazing it is that so little a thing brings down so powerful of a man. Herod was struck down at the height of his glory. An angel delivers Peter, but strikes down Herod. Now here, we could just wrap it up and say, we'll quote Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before the fall, and we're done. Have a good day. Because that's as far as some people might only go with this. Well, you see, it's, it just shows us that bad people will have a bad ending and that pride goes before the fall. And they might even spend unprofitable time conjecturing on what it is that killed Herod. Where the simple fact is, and we must accept this, God killed him. There's no other explanation. God killed him. Now, we could tie it up and say it was a story about a bad man and a horrible ending. But we have to always keep this thing as a whole and plug this right back in to the rest of, of what has been going on. And this is the key. Every time the gospel traveled the path that Jesus had commanded, he said, remember, take this gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. That was his command. That was the sequence in which they were to go. And each place that they went, there was success. There were miracles. People were converted. But each place, there was also trouble. At all points, enemies of the gospel reared their hateful heads. And each time, we would also see God's judgment. We can go to Jerusalem. The event which we already read about and, and looked at, which hissed at the serpent's subtlety, Ananias and Sapphira, lying to the Holy Spirit. They were struck dead. In Judea, as the gospel began to spread, a persecutor arose, whose first fierce fury knew no bounds. God struck him down as well. But instead of killing him, raised him to newness of life and service. As we would see what happened to Paul or Saul. Now here in this section, another enemy of the church is struck down. Jesus had warned the people in Mark 8, 8 and verse 15, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Herod who had James the brother of John beheaded who imprisoned Peter, hoping the people would call for his head as well, of the family that tried to kill the babies, the male babies, in the hope of killing the real king. Herod, the man who took upon himself the praise that belonged to God. And then the fourth one we'll be coming on in the next chapter. We'll meet Elymas, 
in chapter 13, a man who the scriptures call a sorcerer. He used his influence to try to influence the city council of Cyprus to get them to refuse to hear the gospel and to turn on those who were bringing it. And we'll see he will be dealt with as well. No matter where the church was expanding, and no matter who may be the enemy, to be against the church is to be against Christ, and to be against Christ is to be against the Father as well. You see, it's not for us to marvel at what condition caused the flesh of Herod to rot, putrefy, and breed worms. We must look at the case of why it was so. You see, if we look at the life of Herod and the things that were going on, seven years at least into his ruling, things seemed to go very well for Herod. Even as he persecuted the church, it was almost that he was gaining superiority over all his enemies. And it, that looked like God was with him and how that must have seemed to believers at the time. Here's this persecutor of the church and he's prospering. And he's prospering against us. God must not be looking upon us with favor. But what was happening? God set Herod up very high and higher. To what purpose? That when he fell, it would be a mighty fall. It would be a terrible fall. It would be a, a height, a fall from a tremendous height that would make such a great crash. Now we know what happened to Herod. But in contrast, verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. He who tried to stop it was dead. He who tried to squelch the word found himself dead. However, the word was quite alive and giving life. No man or group took Herod out. God did it. The apostles did not strike down Ananias and Sapphira. God did it. And if we do what we're supposed to do, we can expect God's protection. See, God's sovereignty is not an excuse for inactivity, but at the same time, it's not an excuse or a reason for us to overestimate our work. And it's a reminder that God loves his church. He loves it as he loves his son. 
He gave his only begotten son for the church. And we must remember, I know it's a simple thing, but the church is not building. It's the people of God. Each one individually saved through the world's only Savior. Each one adopted as children, as sons by God. And if God be for us, each and every one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, if God be for us, who? Who can be against us? Let's stand together for prayer.